I want you to imagine with me for a little bit. I want you to imagine your life as it is today, your family, your work, your job, all that you have. Now imagine that tomorrow everything becomes undone. There's, a, there's a, a people group, a race or ethnicity that's not your own that in essence pledges war against your race, your people group, your ethnicity. And happens tomorrow and then you wind up finding yourself being oppressed, being ruled by another, one that's not of your own. And so there's this group that is totally different from you, and they're your oppressor. They're ruling over you. And so your, your job, you don't go to your job anymore. Your hopes and dreams that you had, you don't have anymore. The way you saw your life going, it's not going to go that way anymore. Now you're being ruled. Now you are going to serve someone else's agenda for the rest of your life. You, your kids, your grandkids, your great-great-great-grandkids will be under this oppression And so this is not a kind oppressor, right? They are one who mistreats you, who is bad towards you, one who punishes you, is harsh towards you, would even kill your children. And so this is the place you find yourself in, right? And imagine that if you had a chance to get out, you had a way of escape, you saw a glimmer of hope, would you take it? Absolutely. And so you gather your family together, everything you can hold, everything you can take. And when it comes, the darkness of night, you just run. You start sprinting all out, exhausted, your family together. You're trying to get away. And your oppressor, they find out, they know. So they start in pursuit of you and your family. And so you run as hard as you possibly can. And they draw near and they draw close to you. And you're not sure what's going to happen. And finally you just make it through a border, a barrier. And now they can't touch you again. You made it. You're out. And so you look back and you're thankful from where you came. But now you look out to what is about to happen and you're not so sure of that either. You may die out here, but you know what? You'd rather die here than back there under oppression. And so here you are. You're, you're a refugee. You're stateless. You're nameless. You have no nation. You're just out here kind of wondering, trying to piece together a life. And what happens is that a day turns into a week. And weeks roll into months. Months into years, years into decades, stateless, nameless, a refugee, you just escaped for decades. And you're trying to piece together this new life. What does it mean to live out here? What does it mean to be like this? And so eventually, time and time goes by, you finally learn that you will be resettled. You'll be put into a nation, into a country, into a people. Now, you didn't get to choose it. It's still not going to be your nation and your people, right? But your family's going to be resettled. But unfortunately for you, it's taken too long. Death is crouching at your door. It's breathing down your neck. You're not going to make it. And so you go with your family to the land that they'll be resettled in. And you gather them together because you've got something important to say. You've been their leader. You've been the one they look to. You've been their strength. You've been the kind of the patriarch of this family. 
all the things that have happened and now all the things that are going to happen, you need to make this speech, this moment count. It's the, if you haven't heard anything else I've said, listen to this speech. And so you draw your family together and they lean in. In that moment, what would you say? And how would you make sure they never forget it? In essence, this is where Moses is in the final chapters of Deuteronomy. As we close the Torah, as we end everything up today, this is where we find Moses standing on the muddy banks of the Jordan River, the promised land, as a backdrop. Moses' days, maybe hours from his death. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Finally, they're going to be placed into a land that's still not their own. They made it out of Egyptian slavery and captivity barely, 400 years of it. And here they stand. And this is a monumental moment. It's so important what, what Moses says in this time. What he's going to tell them, hey, everything we've gone through, here's what you've got to remember. Everything you're going through, you have got to remember this. And so there with all Israel gathered around, they all kind of crowd in and lean for Moses. And Moses draws a breath of air, and in his last words to the people, he begins singing. And the people were like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. It's a little weird, a little awkward. You know, Moses is like, hey, listen to this. La, 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 la. And so they're like, okay, I will just go with it. But why would, why would Moses do Of all the amazing, incredible, remarkable speeches that Moses has given, here, his last speech is not a speech. It's a song. And you know the reason why Moses sang a song instead of gave a speech? It's because songs stick with us, don't they? Tunes and melodies and these words and these rhythms and these rhymes, like we can remember them forever. I'll prove it to you. I brought some songs. I'm going to sing them, and you're going to finish the words. You will quickly learn that I'm not a worship pastor. Let's try this one, right? See how songs stick. All my exes live in... Oh, yeah, very good, right? 1987 on that one, okay? Here's another one. The best part of waking up. There it is. All right, 1984, the year I was born. It's ingrained in there. You know it, right? Um, here we go. Maybe some of you, uh, uh, you uh, have, who have a testimony. Um, there's plenty of room at the hotel. Oh, we got a lot of people. With that. Okay, yep. 1977, 1977. Um, uh, I like this one too. I can't get no satisfaction. Yeah, we're going to start a band afterwards. That's 1965, and it's in there. You got it locked away, right? Um, uh, this was an odd one, but I think you'll know it. My baloney has a first name. It's, <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, also 1965. Let's go way back. Let's test this theory. Do songs really stick? Um, somewhere over the rain. Yeah. 1939. And you guys got it, right? All right, last one. We'll move on. I'll stop singing. Um, amazing grace. 1779. And you still got it. I gave you two words and you were able to sing it. Songs have a way of sticking with us. 
Songs have a way of embedding themselves in our brain, even when we don't want them to, right? I still remember the Barney songs from when I was a kid. So Moses, on the banks of the Jordan, doesn't give a speech. He gives them a song because he wants them to remember. He wants them to remember, okay? The other thing about it is, is that they, they didn't have access or a copy of the Torah. Moses didn't, couldn't say to them, hey, just make sure you read your Torah every day and everything will go well. He couldn't say, you know, you know, get your iPod out or get your copy or go check it out from the priestly library. They didn't have that. In Deuteronomy 31, we find out how often they read the Torah together. It's once every seven years. Once every seven years, the Torah's coming out, and we're reading as a group. Parents in the room, could you imagine only telling your kids the rules and the way of the household once every seven years? Right? Their 14th birthday comes, and you're like, oh, good Lord, it's about time. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to read some rules. You know, you have been terrible. But seven every seven years. And so Moses gives them a song so they can remember, so it'll stick with them. He sums it all up. Now the song, it's an interesting song. It's not like any other song, right? It's very, very unique topic, right? He doesn't sing about the places we've been, oh, the wonderful desert. He doesn't sing about that. He doesn't sing about a woman he loves, right? He doesn't sing about beer, trucks, or fishing, you know, for you country people. Um, What Moses does, the topic of the song is that of a lawsuit, And I know in your brain, you're like, hmm, what's the last best lawsuit song I heard? You probably haven't heard. There's not a lot of good lawsuit songs out there, right? As I thought, I was trying to figure out what's the best lawsuit song I've ever heard. This is the closest I could come up with. I'm going through the big D and don't mean Dallas. I couldn't believe what the judge had to tell us. I got the Jeep. She got the palace. Palace, palace, right? So that's, that's the closest I could come. There's not a lot of good lawsuit songs out there. But here... About to head into the promised land. After all they've come through, Moses gives them a song about a lawsuit. And he wants them to remember. He summed it all up and he gave them this package. He says, take this, memorize it, recite it. I hope it sticks with you. Don't forget it. So what's Moses' lawsuit song? He gives it to us in five verses. The first verse It's in Deuteronomy 32. Grab your Bibles. Let's go there. Deuteronomy 32 to Moses' lawsuit song. The first verse of Moses' lawsuit song, we have witnesses that are called. The prosecution is introduced. Verses 1 through 3. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. And so here he calls witnesses. Heaven and earth are called as witnesses. Why heaven and earth? Because they've been around forever. Since the beginning of time, they've been eyewitness to everything that's taken place. And so Moses said, yeah, this is heaven and earth. They've been witnesses. We're going to call them to sit in on this. And then he gives these similes. He says, hey, my my words right now, they're like rain. They're like dew. What Moses means in that, he goes, hey, these words I'm about to give you are growth-inducing, life-producing words. The question is, you want to know how to live in the land? 
You want to know to have a full and satisfying, abundant life. Then listen to these words. They're like rain on grass. They'll grow. They'll produce life. And lastly, what he does, Moses kind of introducing himself as a prosecuting attorney on behalf of God. He goes, I'm going to proclaim God's name to you. Now, in those days, a name just wasn't something arbitrary. We called someone like Scott, right? I don't know if you're Scott. I'm sorry. I just don't know what that means, right? But there, your name was who you were. It was your character. And so Moses is saying, let me tell you, let me proclaim God's name. Let me tell you his character. There's the first verse of Moses' lawsuit song. Second verse, what Moses does in his lawsuit song is he makes an opening statement and lays out some charges. So here it is, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and who established you? Now, I want you to look throughout this song. Moses weaves in a really cool theme, talking about God being the rock, the capital R rock. What Moses is trying to do there is communicate that God is our strength, he's our refuge, he's our protection. He is a rock, okay? And then he talks about this. He says, hey, this rock, he is faithful. It means he is steadfast, he is unwavering, he doesn't change, he doesn't move. You can count on him, he's dependable. This is who God is. And he says, but yet you, you're corrupt, you're twisty, you're perverted in a sense. And so he says, you know, you're no longer my children. And now, of course, they're still his children, but it's almost this idea that God's like, I just don't want to claim them at this time. I know they're still mine, but I don't want to claim them. I think the best scenario I think about that is when I was with my mom. There are multiple times she didn't want to claim me, but one of the best ones was we're in Walmart. Just taking a nice stroll, picking up some groceries for the family, right? And I'm in the cart, and mom's pushing it, and so she stops there. She reaches to the shelf to get something, and she feels little drops of water on her ankles. And so she turns to look up and see if there's water dropping, and then she sees me with my pants down, urinating, aisle five in Walmart. (laughs) And so she's grabbing things off the shelf, you know, trying to shield it and get down, you know. At that moment, what my mom should have done is been like, you know, everybody else is looking at her like, Let's go find your mother. Come on. This is not, you know. At that moment, she didn't want to claim me, although I was her child, right? In essence, here's what God's doing. He goes, because you're your crooked, perverse, twisted generation, I've been steadfast. You are my children, but, man, it's really hard to claim you as my child right now. It's the prodigal child. And God, he, Moses says, is this how you thank God? Your creator, the one who gave you life, who protects you, who sustains you, this is how you want to Repay him? And then we enter into the third verse of Moses' lawsuit song. And here in this verse, we're going to see character evidence is presented. Character evidence for God and character evidence for the nation of Israel. First, we look at the character evidence of God. Verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High, when God gave the nations their inheritance, when God divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion, his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. 
He found them in the desert land. That's Egypt. He found them in Egypt, a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for them. He kept them as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with them. He made them ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field and suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd, milk from the flock, fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, goats with the very finest of wheat. And you drank the foaming wine made from the blood of grapes. So it's this character evidence on God. Who is God? It's a God who finds them in the desert, in Egypt, and he rallies around them. He cares for them. He protects them. It says he protects them as if they were the apple of his eye. That's an English idiom. But the Hebrew, the literal translation is he protects them like the little man in your eye. Now, if you have a spouse or someone you want to try this with or just a complete stranger, lunch would be fun. But get really close to their eye and look in their pupil. And what you'll see is a little person, a little man. You'll see yourself, your reflection. And it's a very sensitive, intimate part of the body, right? So he says, I care for you like the little man in the eye. He says, I care for you like an eagle care for its eaglets. Stirs them up out of the nest. An eagle teaches his young to fly by kind of pushing them out of the nest. And then they just start falling down to the canyon floor, 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet. About 90 feet, the mother eagle swoops down, catches them on her back, brings them to safety. And let's do it again. Out you go. He's saying, hey, Israel, every time you fell and your death was impending, eventually I would swoop down and I would pick you back up. That's the care I've had for you, Israel. And so he goes on and says, I've even suckled them with honey. That word suckled, it's, it's, it's nursing, it's breastfeeding. It's this idea that you, Israel, you're absolutely helpless, and yet I'm caring for you. And it says I suckled you even out of the rock or the flinty rock. It's this idea that he's caring for them, providing for them in ways unimaginable, in a place where it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to get care and sustenance from. God is nursing them. What intimate Incredible care that God has provided for the nation of Israel. That's God's character evidence. And then we turn to Israel. Their character evidence, verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and stout and sleek, and then you forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods and abominations and provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to the gods they had never known, new gods that had come recently whom your fathers have never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. This word jeshurun, it means the upright ones, but the, the, kind of what the text is trying to say here is that it's this ideal situation. Hey, Israel, your caretaker, your provider is just perfect situation for you. You've been, have a silver spoon in your mouth. Anything you could ever want, you were taken care of. Not just a little bit, but abundant provision. This is God's care for you. And what did you do? You kicked him. It's this idea, again, go back to nursing and you have a baby and most of the times they would take it very calmly, very docile. But every now and then there's a baby who kicks and jerks their head and bends their back and pushes away, right? 
And so I did it like, I mean, I have a 10-month-old, and, I, you know, I've already started feeding her, and I've got that food projected right back into my face. And I'm like, now, if you don't eat this, you're not going to make it. I'm caring for you, but yet you're spitting and you're kicking back. And he's like, this is you, Israel. You've been cared for, and yet you're, no, I don't want it. And he says, you've chased after, you've provoked him to anger and to jealousy with gods that are not God. And so there's these things in Israel's life, maybe even in our lives, that we worship, that we care for, and they have no power, no authority. They're not gods. And he says here, it's like, like they, they don't deserve to be worshipped. Well, number one, because they don't exist and they didn't do anything for you. It'd be like raising children in your household and you've done everything for them. You pay for them, health insurance and food and clothes and shelter and school. And then one day... They just run out of your house to some stranger walking down your neighborhood and go, thank you for everything you've provided for me. This is the nation of Israel, turning their attention away to something else that's new, that's flashy, and they're not going to the one who gave birth to them, who labored over them. This is their character evidence. We move to the fourth verse of the Song of Moses, and this is where judgment is rendered. First on Israel, and then on foreign pagan nations. Verse 19, let's look at judgments laid on Israel. The Lord saw this and spurned him because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. God said, I will hide my face from them. I will see that their end will be their perverse generation, children who there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not a God, and they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to the depths or to anger with foolish nations. For a fire is kindled in me by my anger. It burns from the depths of Sheol and devours the earth and increases and sets on the fire of foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters upon them. I'll spin my arrows upon them and they shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague, poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of Beast against them, the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoor terror for young man and woman alike, for the nursing child and the man with gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces, I will wipe them from human history, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should be misunderstood, lest they say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. You're starting to see why we don't sing the song in church today. Why no one's recorded this. This is a little dark. It's very serious. Like God's judgment that he is giving on Israel for their apostasy, for their rebellion, for their revolt, for their walking away is pretty sincere. I will hide my face literally means I will hide from them. I will take my presence from them. They're, they're my beneficial presence, my blessing, I'm just going to hide it, remove myself. And I'm going to take people who are not a people, these foreigners, these pagans who don't worship me, they're, they're foolishness, but I'm going to let them come over and conquer you and oppress you and discipline you and punish you. This is your judgment. And it's saying his anger is just raging from the depths of Sheol, from the depths of the grave to the highest mountain. It says all-consuming wrath and anger he has towards sin. He says, man, woman, Child, old, doesn't matter who you are, no one escapes. 
God goes even so far as to say, I would tear you limb from limb, cut you to pieces, wipe you from human memory. He's serious about sin. And he renders Israel judgment. He says, the only reason I'm not doing this is because all these pagan nations wouldn't give me credit for it. They would think they destroyed you and wiped your name from history. So I'm going to hold off just so they don't take the credit. Man, insane judgment. Then he goes on to judge the foreign nations. Verse 28, for they are a nation void of counsel. There's no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have been put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? And he's saying, look, no one's touching Israel unless I give them up. Verse 31, for their little our rock is not as our big our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom. From the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of poison and their clusters are bitter. And their wine is the poison of serpents, the cruel venom of asps. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine. and Recompense for the time when their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. So God's talking about these foreign nations. And I love one of the phrases he says. The reason he's going to pour out vengeance on them is this. Is that they trust in a little our rock. There's these things that look like big our rocks. They act like big our rocks, but they're not. It's fool's gold. It looks that way. It's cheap. It's easy, right? And he's like, but it's not protection. It's not your strength. I alone. And they worship him. And so he says, hey, I've got vengeance. It is mine. It is stored up with me. No one else has access. This idea is that he takes it and he puts it in a storehouse, in a storeroom, like where they would store wine. And they shut the door and they put clay over it. And it says the, the owner takes their ring and their signet and seals it. Saying, is I alone who has access to this. And Jesus is saying, the vengeance is mine. I alone have access. And when I determine the time is right, I'll take that off and I'll pour it out. And the vengeance God is talking about here isn't just revenge. It's not eye for eye revenge. It's this idea of protection of his own. These foreign nations who come and conquer and oppress and punish even the Israelites. It's this idea that the executive exercise is the highest legitimate authority for the protection of his own subjects, almost self-defense from the aggressor. Now we're in the final and the last verse of Moses' lawsuit song. And it ends with a surprising and shocking vindication. Look in verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people, have compassion on his servants. See that when their power is gone, there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank from the wine of their offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that even I, I am he. There is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgments, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and the sword shall devour the flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, O God, for he avenges the blood of his children 
He takes vengeance on his adversary. He repays those who hate him. And he cleanses his people's land. See, the purpose of God's discipline, his judgment on Israel is not destruction. It's not what he wants. He wants to cleanse them, to heal them, to restore them, to reconcile them. This is shocking. Now, when is this going to happen? It says when their strength is no more. When they've reached the end of themselves, when they've tried everything that they could and nothing works, they finally turn back to him. He said, I'll be there to acquit them, to exonerate them, to liberate them, to restore them and renew them. And God here in this verse, I mean, I really like it. He gets super sarcastic with Israel. He's like, hey, all those, those not gods that you've worshipped, all those hobbies, all those interests, all those idols, all those other things, where are they? Let them stand up and protect you. Let them give you refuge. I mean, God's calling them out. It's like those things can't because they're not gods. They have no power. But it's things that we worship and they worship anyways. And so Moses, he kind of finishes up and he talks about this is no empty word, but this is life. Again, kind of summing up for him. You want to have a good life? In the promised land, you want to have a satisfying, fulfilling, amazing life? Listen to these words. I think when he boils it all down, what Moses is saying here is that Israel and even you and I, we have to have wholehearted devotion for generations to come. Generations to come. Moses' death, he goes on and describes that. It's one more reminder of consequences of breaking faith with God. And again, this is just such a crazy, crazy song that we see, this lawsuit song, Rise Are Heading Into the Promised Land. But you may be here and be like, you know what, Destin? I'm not a refugee. I'm not a wilderness wanderer. I didn't get out of Egyptian slavery. I'm not heading into a new nation or a new land. What does this have to do with me? Well, interesting enough, in Revelation chapter 15, verse 2 and 3, let me read this to you. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its nature, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. This song, Deuteronomy 32, it was sang thousands of years ago. It's still sang today, and we will sing it again in the eternal state. This song. So it tells me that although, no, we're not the Israelites, we're not heading into a promised land, we haven't just got out of wilderness wanderings, it matters to me. If people are still singing it today, if we'll sing it in heaven, there's something that you and I today can glean from this passage and learn. I think there's some amazing principles that come out. The first one is this, that you and I can apply from this song today in our lives is this, is that people still walk away from God. People still turn their back, they revolt, they rebel, they kick against the one who gave them life. So I wrote down a couple reasons. I just want you to think through and let the Spirit speak to you. Where might you be taking steps away from God? Where might your faith be a little warped, a little twisted, a little corrupted? Where might you be kicking against God, stirring him to jealousy, provoking him to anger? Where are you sacrificing and worshiping those things that are not God? Where are you being unmindful of your creator and sustainer? Here are some reasons people turn and walk away. Hard life events. Something bad, something hard happens and people start doubting God's goodness and that he is for them. 
the question of the serpent in the garden comes into their mind, does God really love you? And this can be one instance where we take a step away, a step towards apostasy. Some people have a cultural Christianity. There's these spiritual highs, and they just kind of bounce from one thing to another. But when Satan comes at them with guilt and shame of their sin, it just destroys their coffee cup Bible verse Christianity. And it's this understanding with me rooted that, you know what? Jesus has paid it all. That we are made right and innocent when we trust in Christ our Savior. No, guilt or shame can't take that away from us. So some people have this cultural Christianity, and they take a step away. Here's one for Flower Mound. Prosperity. Sometimes or way people take a step away from God. It's been said that prosperity is a more dangerous trial than adversity. In adverse circumstances, a believer is reminded of how desperately he needs God's help. But in time of prosperity, he may easily forget God. There's something about the comfort of our first world, our flower mound lives that begin moving us in a step away from God. Complacency, thinking, I'm good enough, I don't need to grow anymore, I've got where I've got. It's this convenience, we choose the fake, the cheap, the imposter. We choose the fool's gold over the true rock. When we refuse to consult the creators on matter he alone controls, we're good, we're successful, we're smart people, and more and more we want to take control, and we refuse to to go to him and consult him and pray to him. That's one more step away. Thinking we're above the law, that the law doesn't apply to us. The law is just, oh, it's for our benefit, but if we see another way that's more beneficial, we'll just do that. It's a step towards apostasy. A division of loyalty when we worship those things that are not God's, that don't have the power of God's, whether it's materialisms, our, our homes, our hobbies, our work, or even our families, we take a step away from God. When we forget the one who gave us life, who sustains us, we're taking a step in the wrong direction when we bring unclean things into the holy and righteousness of God, this kind of mix and match religion. Oh, I have my Christianity, but there's a couple of things in the culture that I kind of want to go with too, and I'll just add this in, or listen to this music, or this kind of media, and I'll just kind of mix and match my own religion. It's apostasy. It's a movement away from God. And when we leave God alone, like he's an old toy, an old shirt in the closet, a Bible that just sits on the shelf that we pick up once a week. This is just a step away from God. And why is one step, one turn, one little thing, why is that important? Well, I think about in golf, I read an article a long time ago. and said when you're addressing the ball for the tee off, you've got your driver there. And if that club head, when you make contact, is one centimeter off, little, no big deal, right? Over the course of 300 yards, it's now 80 to 100 feet off the target. And the little step, the little turn in our lives today over the course of time, over the course of the journey, we'll find ourselves so far off. We don't even know how to get back. I met with a young man who graduated from this church in this student ministry. We said it red, hot, and blue this week. And he told me about his cocaine addiction. I'm like, what? How did this even happen? He was spending $100 a day using cocaine. Great kid. I loved him, right? And so we start unraveling this process. And you know what it was? It was a centimeter and a centimeter and a centimeter. And slowly steps away from God. And now he's trying to get his life back together. So where might we be taking steps away? Drifting, running, just turning away. It's abandoned. And Moses' song pleads to us, beckons us 
to come back. The second principle we realize is this, is that there's still a consequence of sin. And I wrote some down here, but I just want to focus on one. The biggest one for me is this, that we may miss out on God's best for us. Moses did. He had to sit there on Mount Nebo and just look over into the promised land. Look at what could be. And he died there wondering what it would have been like. I think about the NCAA tournament going on, right? Could you imagine if you're a player on one of the teams, you're a Cinderella store, you're a 16 seed, right? You make it all the way to the finals. But the game before the finals, you did something stupid and you got suspended. And there you had to sit in the national championship game and just watch everybody else play. I think that's what sin can do for us. It can sideline us. We can miss out on the best God has for your life. Another principle we pick up and we learn from the Song of Moses is that we have to move forward with the right motivation. There's so much within us, this American, like, just pull your, yourself up by the bootstraps. I'm just going to hear this message. I'm going to be better. I'm going to work harder and put more effort. But that's not it at all. That's a complete wrong motivation. That's why the law was given to say, look, you can't be good enough on your own. You don't have the power within yourself. There has to be something greater, and it's relying in Christ Jesus on the cross. That's our motivation for doing good and being better. I heard a Navy SEAL talk to me one time about uh, SEAL training and boot camp, and I'm sure I've done something very similar because I went through seminary. No, I'm just kidding. And, but he told me this. I'll never forget this, right? He said, if you go into that training, it's the hardest in your life. If your motivation is found inside yourself, you'll never make it. If you think like, oh, I can just do one more sit-up and one more push-up because I'm tough and I'm strong, you'll never make it. He said, you better have a motivation that's bigger than yourself and outside of yourself. He said, you better be thinking during, like, if I don't do this next sit-up, someone's going to take my wife. If I don't do this next push-up, someone's going to take my child. He goes, it's that motivation that'll push you through. I've always remembered that. I think it's the same is true with the gospel, right? If we just try to do it for ourselves, we're going to fail. This is motivation that I'm going to do it for Christ, Christ alone. Fourth principle we take from the Song of Moses is this, is that I think God still feels the same way about sin. I think we get so just like this idea of just like God's so fluffy and he doesn't really care and he just doesn't see our sin or he doesn't notice or it doesn't bother him. He's just like overly doesn't care about it. And this was so good for me this week to be in this passage and to read this. It was a little dark, it's a little scary, just ripping to pieces and wiping from memories. Like God still feels that way when I sin, when you sin. He still has that sort of wrath towards it. I think that's good to hold in hand because there's a balance. The fifth principle is this, that God still feels the same way about you, that he loves you. The more we understand how much he hates sin, the more we can appreciate how much he loves us. And that God's purpose, his, his desire is not to destroy us, but to redeem us, to renew us, to restore us, to acquit us, to exonerate us, to liberate us and free us. That's his purpose. So for us today, here's what happens. New Testament, new covenant under grace. The trial happens. At the very end, you and I were found guilty of apostasy, of worshiping that which is not God's, of mixing and matching religions, of kicking against our creator. The gavel slams were sentenced to the death penalty. And then Judge Jesus stands up. He takes off his robe and he walks down the bench. 
And he comes over to where we're at, and he leans over, and he whispers in our ear. He goes, let me take it from here. I got this. I love you. You go free. And Jesus is shackled, and he's led down death row, and he serves out a capital punishment. He is executed on our behalf. That's where we're at today. And you and I are left with the decision. One, we can accept that and say, I'll receive that free gift of salvation. Or you can say, no, I'll keep kicking. I'll keep rejecting. I'll live out my own sentence. So for those of us in here who have trusted in Christ as Savior, we've been exonerated, acquitted, let free. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. And it's a great way to remember the sacrifice, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We can rejoice in that. So for those of you who have trust in Christ, prepare your hearts for that. For those of you who have not yet trusted in Christ, I would just ask you to examine your heart. God's desire is to acquit you, to exonerate you, to give you life and liberty and freedom. He's taken your capital punishment, if you'll receive that and let him. And so maybe you just need to trust in Christ as your Savior, ask for forgiveness of your sins, believe in him. And so let me pray, and we'll take communion and worship. God, thank you so much for the song of Moses. God, this memorable thing that you gave the Israelites going into the promised land and how it's applicable even for us today, God. Help us to see your seriousness about sin, your hatred towards sin, but also your love for us, your desire to rescue us, to vindicate us, to acquit us, and to give us liberty and life. Lord, you want us to live long and prosper in the land. So God, help us to heed the words of Moses, the song. Lord, help us not to kick against you, to to turn away from you, to revolt against you in any way, God. But help us to have wholehearted, complete, sold-out devotion towards you. To love you with all our mind, with our soul, with all our strength. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.